0: So let's bring our attention to our motivation and by constantly remembering what our long term purpose is, what our long term vision and meaning are, then we're able to put whatever we do on a day to day basis into a much larger context. and so much of that larger context has to do with setting our motivation which is a way of purifying our mind because to have a good motivation we have to free it from disturbing and contradictory elements and we have to cultivate the kind of thoughts and emotions that we admire and that we want to have because what we develop now is what we will perfect and become as our spiritual goal and so for that reason we continuously try to remember our relationship with all living beings wanting to be of service to them and therefore developing the wisdom, skill and compassion that will lead us to great, to full enlightenment so that we can be of the greatest benefit. So we are talking a little bit in our discussion about how uh, monastic life helps us uh, attain our spiritual goals and I think one of the ways it functions is that it uh, continuously brings us back to our motivation because you don't live this kind of life um, because you have nothing else to do <laughs> and because you're just doing what society wants You know, you're living this kind of life because uh, you have a very specific intention. And it's important to set that intention again and again and again every day. And so one of our practices is when we first wake up in the morning, you know, to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha so that we set our spiritual direction very clearly in our mind. We know where we're going. And then, as to why we're going there, then we think you know, today as much as possible. I don't want to, or I will not harm anybody, either by how, how I speak, how I act, or what I think. And today, as much as possible, I'll be in bene- I'll be a benefit in whatever big or small way I can. And today. I want to keep uh, my long-term spiritual motivation foremost in my mind, that bodhicitta motivation to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Okay, Because it's only when we're able to have a clearance where we want to go that we're able to, um, to live this kind of life You know, which requires looking at our mind, modifying our behavior, questioning our thoughts, questioning our feelings. Okay? So the motivation is really of crucial importance. And I think that's one of the beauties. And you see that when people forget their motivation, when they become lax or distracted and forget their motivation then that's the time when they begin to have difficulties in their ordination and so that's why we really keep our motivation very strong in front of us because then we know where we're going why we're going there, what we're doing and when we're clear on that and we have a really beautiful motivation like the bodhicitta then that gives us a lot of courage in our life to um, to create the cause to actualize that. Right. Whereas when our motivation is wishy-washy, when we just do things on automatic, as so many people do in life, you know, trying to become what we think other people want us to be, uh, doing what everybody else is doing because we don't want them to think we're weird you know all this kind of life on automatic then the motivation is usually so uh, foggy and often non-existent or functioning at unconscious levels and so you know we're making all sorts of decisions that haven't been well thought out that lead us into difficulties because we aren't we don't have a clear purpose and we're not Uh, continually renewing our motivation. Is that making some sense to you? So I wanted to continue um, from yesterday when I was talking about um, why a monastic environment is structured the way it is for those of you who are new to this kind of environment. And I put it in the framework of the Four Noble Truths and especially of the true path the three higher trainings developing ethical conduct on that basis developing concentration and on that basis developing the wisdom that frees us from samsara and doing all of that with the motivation of love compassion and bodhicitta. okay so some uh, last time I talked about um, how we're not going to like the the schedule and we're not going to like the kitchen organization and we're not going to like the way the meditation and prayer sessions are organized either. So we got all of that straight. Right? <laughs> so this is our first um, experience of renunciation okay. of I'm living here and I'm just going to flow with it instead of fighting everything. When I went to take Bhikshuni Vows in Taiwan, there were over 500 of us. And to get us all into the uh, hall, which was the dining room, but it served as our classroom, to get 500 people there in an organized way, they had us all file into first the Buddha Hall and then turn around and file into the dining hall, the classroom. So it took a long time to do this. And I'm American, and I want to do things quick, easy, efficient. I had a great way to do it, a great idea, and nobody wanted to hear it.
1: <laughs> In any
0: case, they didn't speak English, so, and I didn't speak Chinese. So there was no way to communicate my excellent, fantastic idea so this was a big lesson for me I had to be quiet and do it somebody else's way okay. excellent experience for me Okay, and so we're constantly coming up against this as we live the monastic life in the community is learning to do things in other people's way and learning to be relaxed with it that we don't have to fight it, we don't have to quarrel, you know, that actually sometimes the inconceivable happens and that is that somebody else's idea is better than ours. (laughs) You know, miracles are really possible. (laughs) And so we, we learn to work with that. We also learn to discuss things and uh, how not to discuss ad infinitum. That sometimes is difficult. (laughs) Okay. But all these just uh, ways of everyday learning that uh, are part of transforming our mind so we can go to our ultimate goal. Um, A monastic environment is a celibate environment. This is completely different than outside, isn't it? Yeah? Especially in our Western societies where sex is glorified and uh, promulgated as if it were the highest happiness. And everybody believes it. You know? People just, okay, the media tells us this, I believe. Sign me up. You know? And, uh,. And then everybody's sleeping with this person and that person. And uh, my Tibetan teachers are astonished by the amount of relationship problems that their students come to them to discuss. You know, there's just so puzzled, you know, so many romantic relationship problems. Uh, Have you had romantic relationship problems? If you've had a romantic relationship, you have certainly had romantic relationship problems. Okay? Uh, And these can be very difficult, very painful, bringing up lots of issues. And uh, going to live in a celibate environment cuts all of that out. But what it doesn't immediately cut out is our habitual tendencies to buy into that view that... We want a romantic relationship, we want a sexual relationship, we want an emotional relationship that's special. And so we continue to act, again, on automatic in ways that we've been conditioned in the past to attract somebody to us. And so a lot of the ways we do, it, we do things in a monastic environment are Designed specifically to break that mental, verbal, and physical habit of doing those activities that we are so accustomed to to attract somebody to us. Okay, so that's why I was talking yesterday about being mindful of the way we walk, of the way we sit, of the way we stand, because so much in our culture we express. You know, romantic and sexual interest in this way. And you can see it at meditation retreats, you know. It's like, oh, I'm meditating. Oh, mm -hmm. there's that good-looking guy Mm -hmm. (laughs) walking right past me. Mm. Okay, I see where he's sitting. Uh, I wonder where he does walking meditation, because I'll make sure I walk very close to where he's walking. And then we might just bump into each other and meet. And all this goes on unconsciously. You know? But we're just, well, sometimes consciously, actually. <laughs>
1: you
0: know? <laughs> we don't like to admit it. Um, you know, but this kind of thing will come up. You know, here we are, sitting, trying to develop compassion for all infinite, sentient beings. And our mind is plotting You know, where we can sit or walk, where we'll just accidentally, coincidentally bump into and have a chance to talk to somebody we're attracted to. Hmm? So we start to become mindful of that. We become mindful of our speech, what we talk about, how we say things, because we're always trying to create an identity that attracts people to us. Maybe not attracting them romantically. But we want to have a good reputation. We want people to like us. So we created a personality, an image. And uh, sometimes we do quiet retreats. And it's very unsettling for people. Because who am I if I can't spend my break time telling other people who I am? Because that's one of the chief things we speak about, is who I am. What I do, what I like, what I don't like, what I think about, what I believe, what I disagree with. And, you know, suddenly trying to not do that so much. Like, well, who am I? And will they like me? And then not wearing jewelry. We talked a little bit yesterday about, you know, how jewelry and clothes... But you know how we use them to attract people to us, and singing, dancing, playing music you know, we use them to attract people to us, and we also use singing, dancing, playing music, entertainment to take us out of the present moment and into la la land where we can um, uh, medicate or soothe our problems, okay. So you know the the we 're mentioning about uh, alcohol in the uh, in our discussion group, and the reason that there 's no alcohol is you know because it 's so easy for our mind to go off and say and do all sorts of things that we uh, don't mean and to break all of our other precepts when we 're intoxicated, but also um you know what 's one of the chief reasons why we Take intoxicants of any kind, it's to take us away from ourselves. There's pain inside, and rather than look at our pain and confront it and solve it, we we distract ourselves. So, you know, drugs, illegal drugs, and alcohol are chief ways that people do that in society. Um, Abuse of prescription meditation is actually... Medication. Oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> Somebody is not abuse of subscription medication. <laughs> we should have prescription medication.
1: <laughs>
0: but, um, you know, the statistics say that more people die from overdoses of prescription meds than from illegal drugs. And pers- the abuse of prescription meds is a much greater problem in many communities, uh, rather than illegal drugs. Okay, so uh, you know, but again, we use it so that we don't have to um, be our own friend. Yeah. Whereas when we don't have access to those things at the beginning, it's a little bit disconcerting. Again, you know, oh I have. I always say I'm too busy, but now I have time. And having time is scary, mm-hmm. you know. That's why we keep ourselves so busy. Yeah. Uh, so, to, when we have time, then we have to become our own friend. We look inside. We we get to know ourselves. You know, we cr- we have time to. Um, build the qualities that we really like and respect in ourselves. We have time, of course, to notice our own faults and to try and do something about them. Okay. But when we're distracted, uh, if our environment is distracted and so on, we have no opportunity to become our own friend. And I find that so... Uh, pronounced in modern society how people feel they're all rushing around i'm so busy i don't have any time i'm so busy i don't have any time and yet the moment an appointment gets cancelled and they have some time there's this feeling of like panic like i've got to fill it with doing something because otherwise i will not have a life so we fill it with Television, computer, movies, and thumb exercise, (laughs) also known as texting. And so our minds get completely distracted. We can't stay with anything. And then we wonder why it's difficult to meditate. Because outside, you know, and outside the session, we're consistently conscientiously distracting ourselves. Always looking for something new and better, more exciting. Okay? So a monastic environment cuts all of that out. Yeah? And so here at the Abbey, you know, there's policies about computer use, and when you use the computer, and for what purpose. Okay? And, uh, you know, we don't have a stereo and and we don't even have well nobody has stereos anymore that's dated (laughs) I'm showing my age excuse me nobody you know we're not walking around with our own individual iPods I find it interesting iPod everything's about me it can't be you pod (laughs) or us pod Mm -hmm. everything's I notice that everything's Mm -hmm. I Okay, so all these things that we distract ourselves with that we think are going to make us happy but actually just breed more inter-turbulence and uh, more confusion. And especially as, as I was talking about at lunch with our relationship to the media and how much we allow the media to condition us and then we wonder why we're distracted, why our minds are confused, you know, why it's so easy to have desire and attachment and anger. Because we're allowing these things to condition us. Okay? So a monastic environment is one in which we're saying we're not going to allow those things to condition us. And we're going to be very mindful of, you know, what we condition ourselves with, because we are conditioned beings, aren't we? You know, and we are influenced by our environment as well as influence them. Another thing that a monastic environment does is it gives us an opportunity to get in touch with our issues about, um, well, what's a good word to use? Well, that's the problem. There is no good word that's going to soothe it. Rules and authority. <laughs> okay? So I'm trying to put it in a more polite way so that people will listen. You know? But we all have authority issues. We all have issues about rules. Okay? Some of us, and this is why we use the word precept or we use the word guideline instead of rule. But many of us, you know see things that you know to do and to avoid doing and even though it's called precepts or guidelines we say rule and as soon as we hear rule then we go into our automatic mode and we have a few different automatic modes regarding rules some people is if it's a rule i'm going to break it (laughs) i don't like rules I don't like to be confined. I don't like people telling me what to do. They think they made these rules because they have experience and wisdom. But there's no reason for me to value their experience and wisdom. And I want to learn from my own experience and generate my own wisdom. So if it's a rule, I am going to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. A few people are smiling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Then some people their way of relating to rules, you know. And again, we're projecting rules onto it. It's precepts and guidelines, but we're projecting rules. Then we project rule. Uh Uh-oh, rule. That means uh, anxiety, panic. I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going to look like an idiot. What are the people going to think about me? I'm going to make a mistake. Oh, this is dreadful. I better, like, learn all the rules and, and... you know stay under the radar and make sure i do everything right because if i do the slightest thing wrong i mean the earth is going to shatter into bits and the sky is going to fall and i'm going to be permanently overwhelmingly crushed especially if somebody has to come and tell me to do something another way okay so I'm exaggerating it but do you see yourself in one way or the other way (laughs) yeah how many of you are the if if it's a rule I'm going to break it okay how many of you are if it's a rule I'm terrified (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay so do you see how we automatically go into those ways of thinking yeah Completely automatically. It's completely our own mind. And we just live this way. And so this is one of the things in a monastic environment is we have to develop a whole new way of relating to things like that. yeah, And pull ourselves out of the automatic way. I mean we can continue our automatic way, but we have to really assess if it works or not. And by working I mean if it's good for our own personal growth and if it's going to get us where we want to go spiritually. Okay. Does being terrified of rules and terrified of people correcting you get us where you want to, get us where we want to go spiritually? No. Some people aren't so sure. Mm-hmm. They're, they're looking at me like, <laughs> you mean I have to risk making a mistake sometimes? Yes, you do. You know, Because it's the only way we're going to grow. Yeah. If you're the kind that, if it's a rule, I'm going to break it, does that get you towards your spiritual goal? No?
1: Why not? Well, when I was in the Air Force, I build a lot of carrots and potatoes
0: okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you wind up feeling a lot of carrots and potatoes in the air force huh yeah and uh, (laughs) yeah so, you know, it gives us, a monastic environment gives us the opportunity to look at these assumed and patterned ways of reaction and experiment with maybe trying to be a bit different. Okay. So the people who are bound and determined to break rules, maybe, you know, experiment. And what happens if you follow them? And the people who are terrified of making mistake how about, you know, realizing that it's no big deal that we all make mistakes and we're all trying to learn and support each other? Okay? So you see, we have an opportunity to develop different sides of ourselves in this kind of environment instead of just um, uh, hiding in the same old behavior. Okay? And it, it's something that I, I talk about a lot. Um, This whole way of how we create an identity and then feel trapped by it and hate our identity but don't want to change from it. I mean, this is the confusion of cyclic existence, isn't it? This strong identity that we have. But we um, all dig ourselves little holes yeah, some of you were out digging hole, real holes today, weren't you? You digging? Oh, you didn't do it. Oh, well, this is what you can think about. When <laughs> <laughs> because we all dig ourselves little holes, sometimes bigger holes than other ones. Okay, and and our hole is is our identity. This is who I am. Yeah, this is what makes me feel secure. If I Dig myself a hole and I sit in it and there's walls around me, that's gonna protect me. From what? I don't know, but I wanna feel safe and secure. Okay. But then our problem is that we decorate uh, our little bone shelter with thorns, with rusty nails, with jagged rocks, and we're extremely uncomfortable. In the little hole that we've dug for ourselves, okay? What are the thorns and the rusty nails and the jagged rocks? Yeah, there are ignorance, anger, and attachment, because they come right in the hole with us. Yeah. So we we decorate our hole yeah. with other aspects of our of our uh, personality, okay. and. Uh, Oh, we did that once. Yeah. Yes, yeah. tell them about your skit. You did it with the potatoes, remember?
1: Well, wasn't the skit, that was the effigy of my <laughs> grossly self-centered, shrieking, screaming, monster fox. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: but, but what we did is we, we took, that's indicative of your hole that yeah. you're stuck in, yeah, yeah. and we, um, you know, I kind of talked about drawing our whole or making a, a physical thing that represents our particular whole, our identity that we've created, that we defend, even though it's incredibly uncomfortable. Okay. And so what were your potatoes doing? Well, it was
1: no, no. Well, then it applies. But anyway, it it was more the graphic representation of the self hate thought that was holding these so tightly. So it was like all the monster, kind of this monster dragon, distorted, weird uh, thing held together with rusty screws and so forth and so forth and so forth. That I mean, a, and with a screaming mouth and the... Ooh, ugly. <laughs> <laughs> But very good to put outside and look at and give to the community. I think that was the most important thing that you asked me to do. Mm-hmm. It went on the dining table and
0: everybody <laughs> hung out <laughs> with it for a few days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, before that screaming monster was in your little hole, mm-hmm. you know, that you dug for yourself and that was your companion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is... You know, what, what we do in monastic life is we, we watch how we um, dig ourselves into holes. We watch how sometimes we help other people dig their hole. That's called codependence. Um, yeah. And then we we ask ourselves, what is really beneficial? My ultimate goal is to benefit all sentient beings. How do I help somebody else get out of their hole? And how in the world do I get myself out of my hole? Because as long as I'm living in my hole, how can I see what's going on in their hole? Okay. So the environment is really structured to help us um, grow in this kind of way. And we have the support to do it. And and we do it, and then we, we reap the benefits of it. Whereas when we live our life on automatic, I think that is the prescription for how to have a difficult death. Don't you? You If you live your life on automatic and don't think and run away from things that frighten you, then that's a whole setup for a painful death, as well as a meaningless life. So our environment is, is getting us to stretch ourselves beyond our boundaries. Okay? And then lo and behold, we find out that we're actually stretchable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that we don't have to be brittle, inflexible people living in a hole our whole life. Okay? So mm-hmm. the environment is, is structured for that. We also um, have an environment in which we practice seeing the kindness of others. And so this starts with the um, food offering prayer that some of you participated in when you came and offered food and you heard what the monastic community says in response. And so this training of you know, really realizing I'm alive due to the kindness of others. And when we offer our food in you know, the first contemplation, thinking about all the causes and conditions and the kindness of others by which we have received this food, that again, training our mind to see that our very life depends on other sentient beings. So this is completely opposite to the Western individualism that we're raised with. And especially for Americans who have grown up with pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Yeah. And if it's a difficult situation, go west, young man, go west. In other words, escape. Yeah. So instead, um, you know, we stay in a situation We work it out and we train our mind to see the kindness of others. Not only in offering food, but when we work together as a community, we see that in order to keep the Abbey running, everybody has to contribute. And that everybody contributes in different ways. And so we train our mind to see and appreciate all the different things that other people do. Our ordinary mind is usually focused on everything I do for others, right? We have a very clear list in our mind of everything we do to help other people, how kind we are, everything that they should appreciate us for, how indebted to us they should be, you know. We're quite aware how we work much harder than anybody else, right? Right? Don't we work much harder than anybody else? I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I go, I work harder than anybody else. All these other people, you know, they're just lazy. They're just sitting around drinking tea. Maybe they pull up a little bit of nap but no big stress. <laughs> you know, I'm working so hard. I'm working longer hours than everybody else. And I'm doing really hard work. And, you know, and they're just sitting around doing nothing. And they don't even appreciate how hard I'm working, everything I'm doing. This is our usual way of thinking, isn't it? Yeah. If we get into that way of thinking in a monastic environment, we are going to be profoundly unhappy.
1: You (laughs) You
0: you go to anger you go to depression but either way you're miserable holding these kinds of thoughts you know and in addition these thoughts are opposite to what we're trying to cultivate spiritually which is seeing the kindness of others and placing ourselves as the lowest of all not meaning that we have low self-esteem but just meaning that we're not blowing our own trumpet okay and, and so this is a, a very profound training um, that you get living in a monastic community because if we come in and with this thing of, you know, oh I've been working harder than everybody else and they're all just drinking tea and blah blah the rest of the community is going to say hmm, No, it's not exactly like that. (laughs) Yeah? And they'll help us, you know, come around and open our eyes so that we can see that we're all contributing, but each in our own individual way. Okay? And that we couldn't be doing what we're doing if other people weren't doing what they're doing. So it's what His Holiness talks about. You know, he always talks about how the bees and the ants are, um, are so cooperative and how their communities are sustained because they cooperate so well and that it's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the most cooperative. And you really see that in a small community or a large community in that everybody contributes and we ourselves cannot do everything. And even if we think our work is more important than everybody else's, actually, if everybody else didn't do their, their particular task, we couldn't do ours either. So that becomes very, very apparent. Yeah. And like I said, if we forget it, others will remind us of it. But I, I'm just thinking, like in terms of building Tommy House, uh, you know, everybody in the community had a role in that, either directly or indirectly. Yeah? And it, it required everybody working together, and it required the kindness of so many people outside of the community to, to have that building. You know? And sometimes I look at it and I go, this thing is miraculous. And one time I was standing out there going, how did we do it? And one of the other people in the community said, because of the kindness of others. Yeah. And that's really it. That's what we see. It's you know not any one person who can do any project here. But we're all interdependent. So we need all of us and we train our mind to really... See others' contribution and to pull ourselves out of this, um, very unhappy mind of, but I'm doing more than others and they don't appreciate me. Okay. Any of you have that habit? I have that strong habit of, I'm doing so much and people don't appreciate how much it is. Yeah? It's misery making, isn't it? Yeah? You want to be unhappy? Think about that. (laughs) But the thing is, when we get stuck in thinking about that, we believe it. We're thoroughly convinced that's the reality of the situation. That we are working harder than others. And they're just sloughing off. And they don't appreciate us. And they want us to do even more because they don't appreciate how much we're already doing. And then they don't even... Praise us for what we're doing. They say, "Do more, fix it better, make it better." You know, or why don't you undo it and you know, do it this other way, right? Yeah. So you know, we we're in that kind of situation all the time, and we see it's a prescription for misery. Uh, you know, gets us further from our spiritual goals, makes us unhappy, creates so much uh, conflict inside and outside. And so by seeing this, then we change. We have to change. And so that's the beauty of this kind of environment, you know. In some environments, you can just stay and be angry and, you know, hold on to your story for a really long time. And your friends might even support you in, in holding on to your story and say, you're right, you know. But here, that's not going to happen, and so it it helps us drop these kind of false stories and bring ourselves back to a kinder way of looking at sentient beings. True? Not true. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, what else is it bringing up? Mm. yeah I would talk briefly about our relationship with the media and uh, and how much it it brings up the whole thing of what does it mean to have a friend because now you know in Western society having a friend means that you're on Facebook and they're on Facebook and you're on Twitter and they're on Twitter (laughs) Yeah. and that you instant and that you i am each other or text each other about the stupidagios in your life that you think are so important that you think everybody else needs to know about asap right yeah and so you know i really wonder in our society cuz we we're creating more and more distance between people Even though technology in another way is making us closer. It's bridging the physical distance. But what it does is it makes us used to living in an artificial environment instead of being with real, live people. And I see people walking down the streets. Everybody's plugged in. Everybody's texting you. Are on your cell phone making an appointment to see your friend, but when you meet that friend, both of you are on your cell phones talking to other friends. Yeah. And parents saying, "I learn more about my children from by when I text them than when I talk to them." Um, you know, tech, with technology and the the prosperity. That being a good parent means that you give your kid their own computer, their own car, their own iPod, their own phone, <clears throat> their own everything, so that they don't have to be in a room with another real, live, sentient being. Yeah. And I see that as a big danger coming to us. Is uh, you know, Are people going to know how to deal with live human beings? Or do we only know how to have friendships with, you know, on Facebook or on a little screen that's this big? Yeah. How do we be with real live people in real time? Mm-hmm. And so in a monastery, again, you have, we, you know, policies about that. At least we do. No? Because we want to be with real people, yeah, in the same room with them, where you get the whole effect of being with a real person, where you get the body language, you get the tone of voice, you get the all the subtle things of being with a human being that you don't get online or you know in any of the other technological modes. Okay. So it's a, um it's bringing us back to what does it mean to have a relationship with somebody. Yeah. And and I really wonder we'll get into this in some of our discussion groups because those of you who are on Facebook I'm quite curious, you know, what you think about friendship and what does it mean to have a friend and what does it mean to trust a friend? Yeah. When you're communicating with them, you know, and putting up um, personal things for all sorts of people to to read, I know it's an interesting way of relating to sentient beings. Okay, so um, these these are some more of the things that living in a monastic environment gives us the chance to look at and to to work on, okay? So, I thought I'd leave some time for questions. We didn't have any yesterday. Questions or comments? Yeah?
1: So when you were talking about... Um and the silence. I was
0: actually surprised that EML isn't a silent retreat and I'm curious ah. why you okay. so why isn't EML a, a silent retreat because the purpose of EML is to give you the experience of actually living in the community it's not a retreat per se it's a community life experience And so in our community here, we keep silence at breakfast, at lunch, and then from um, a quarter to seven in the evening until after breakfast. So that's our regular silent time. We also want to give people a chance to talk, because you learn a lot from each other from talking. And it is also a good um, opportunity to be mindful and aware of what you're talking about and to keep your topics on the Dharma. Because if your topics go off the Dharma and one of the monastics is around, unless we're in the conversation with you,
1: um,
0: (laughs) we will probably remind you. You know? And we have to remind ourselves sometimes. come back to discussing what's important we don't need to talk about movies and um, we had one EML where a whole group of young people were talking about drugs and where you get really good drugs (laughs) and um, we uh, said something about that yeah Uh, because that's just old habitual pattern behavior you know that we don't need to do here okay to, well, Facebook,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah you, I, I know, like, scared about it. she doesn't believe in birth, but, you know. Yeah, right. Okay, so two comments. What about that, that the motivation on Facebook for many people is to be cool mm-hmm. <clears throat> and to have friends so that you look cool. So what's important is your image not the other people yeah. so then it becomes a process of using other people to create an image and we think we're using that image to impress other people but I think actually the one we're trying to impress is ourselves, mm-hmm. because yeah. we don't really have confidence in ourself yeah. uh, but that doesn't really bring confidence does it And then your other comment about watching your great-grandmother, what one great, right? Yeah, one, one great. Great-grandmother, um, uh, you know, approach death and how much fear and concern she has about it. Yeah, And I think this is, is something for us all to be very aware about, and we don't need to wait until we're 99 to do it, especially because we may not be as fortunate as her to live that old. Okay? But... Also, not to worry about dying, but to actually actively take steps so that when death arrives, we can um, die without fear, die without regrets, and carry our strong motivation with us into the next life. In thinking about
1: spiritual spiritual goals in Buddhism, what, what are the values of like ordination versus practicing as a, as a lay person? I mean, you can grow spiritually as a lay person, and I've been learning so far in the past couple talks you've given about the benefits of having a monastic structure. Mm-hmm. Do you see one as being better than the other? Or does it, is it based on each person's individual karma and how they're going to grow best?
0: Okay yeah so <clears throat> regarding practicing as a lay person or practicing as a monastic I think it's an individual choice you know it's not that monastic life is for everybody and it's not that lay life is for everybody so I think it's something where people have to make an individual choice um, and, and feel, make your choice and feel good about it don't sit on the fence thinking oh but I should have Yeah. Oh, what if? I think if you make a choice and and you're still sitting on the fence, then you're going to be miserable no matter what you do. Okay? Um, Having said that, I think if people have the opportunity and the correct motivation for ordaining, I think it's definitely very helpful for the path.
1: Mm Mm-hmm if you're
0: monastic do you stay in touch with the political environment of which the community lives in and exercise vote okay so as as monastics do we stay in touch with the environment in which the community lives the political environment and social environment and do we vote I think yes we try and um, stay in touch with it but to a certain degree. It doesn't occupy our be-all and end-all. And yes, we vote. And I know Thich Nhat Hanh, um, (coughs) his monastics don't vote because he wants them to be completely separate from politics. But I know many other groups, us included, we do vote. Okay? I think that's important to do. Um, We know somewhat what's going on in the world but you know uh you never know everything that's going on in the world do you so if you have this thing of you know i have to know all the news i talked to one man once who told me that he didn't want to go for a weekend retreat because it was so hard to not know what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. because he spent so much time listening to the news every day that for two days he didn't want to go without it that i think is a very unhealthy attitude so um, also we're we're, uh, staying involved in society um, and we're in the process of with some other people in Spokane um, beginning a, a little project called Friends of Compassion where we want to bring compassion into our our city into our environment and so meeting with other people who really value compassion and we want to begin to have more networking among people who hold that value more uh, activities in the city that promote compassion and encourage compassion so yeah we are involved in civic life but maybe in a little bit different way mm-hmm.
1: uh, in the beginning you were saying that it's going brings you back to your motivation for the day definitely noticed that and most days it's really helpful You all of them really happy to be helping all potential beings and everything. but other days it's just so overwhelming how much suffering there is and I am constantly brought back to the motivation but how it seems so out of my reach and mm. it's just really depressing
0: how would I deal with that okay okay so how do we deal you know we're, we're <coughs> trying to live a life that's a with the motivation of being a benefit to all beings. But some days when we think of the suffering, <coughs> it's just so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We think of the suffering and it's so overwhelming. And, uh, and it seems so impossible to do everything. And so then we feel quite depressed. Personally speaking, you know, because this is very much the way I felt years ago uh, when I was younger, and I realized it was because I had the idea and ideal that I alone should be able to transform everything. And what I've learned is that, and I think meditating on causality has been the big thing that's been very helpful here is that everything arises due to causes and conditions. If the causes don't exist, the the event doesn't arise. And that I don't have control over all the causes and conditions that affect myself or anybody else. So um, feeling like I should fix the world is unrealistic because I don't have the power over all the causes and conditions. Feeling like uh, I'm a failure or that the suffering is overwhelming and that I can't do anything is also unrealistic because I do have, uh, I can affect some causes and conditions. And also this long-term perspective really helped me in the sense of, you know, because bodhisattvas don't get depressed. And you know, this was like a call for me. Well, why wouldn't a Bodhisattva get depressed? They're so in touch with the suffering of the world. You know, why don't they get depressed? What's going on here? And it's because they see that suffering is eliminatable. It's possible to eliminate suffering. How? By eliminating its causes: the ignorance, anger, and attachment. But then when you think, what does it take to eliminate those causes, it takes a lot of work, it takes time, it takes energy, and so therefore we have to put ourselves in gear and develop a mind with a lot of patience and a lot of fortitude that can keep going uh, no matter what the environment is yeah because if we have this mind that we want to eliminate suffering right away and and if we think we should be able to eliminate it right away that's when we're going to get confused and depressed and angry but if we think that you know the causes and conditions for misery are very deep it's going to take time but there's something i can contribute to going in that direction then that makes our minds stronger. Yeah, we can endure more. Also, along that line, you know, it's not just thinking, oh, it's going to take me a long time to change all these other people so they stop creating the causes of suffering. It's not that. It's you begin to see, well, you know, the Buddhists and Bodhisattvas have been trying to free me since beginningless time, too. And I'm still not liberated. And they haven't given up on me. And they haven't gotten depressed. And it's taking them a really long time with me. Because all sorts of other people already become Buddhists and I'm just sitting here still, you know, complaining. (laughs) But, you know, so I think what others have to, you know, the compassionate beings have to put up with, with me, so, you know, then I should develop that similar kind of fortitude to uh, stick by others. And see that, yeah, you can influence things and you can change things, but you can't change everything and you can't do it quickly. As much as we want to, so we we have to keep that aspiration to eliminate misery very much alive, but without <coughs> having the expectation that we're going to be able to fill it, <coughs> fulfill it in a very easy and quick way.
1: Yeah. Um, when you mentioned that we have this attitude a lot of times about of. Uh, uh, that we always are doing the most work, and uh, people are appreciating us. For myself, I tend to have sort of an opposite that, especially here at the Abode, even in general, where everyone really is really doing a lot of, uh, you know, really helping out a lot. But um, just that I'm kind of not able to keep up with others and do as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone else is like doing all the stuff. How do they do it? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so um, having this opposite thing from not I'm doing everything and they don't appreciate, but they're doing so much and I can't keep up. And maybe they're going to be upset with me. Or maybe I'll be upset with me. Yeah. Um, This is also a thing of really... um, I think something that's very important for us in life in general, as as well as our spiritual uh, life, is not to compare ourselves to others, that we're all very unique, and we may think that others are doing more, but others may think we're doing more. And the whole thing of comparing ourselves to others is really very futile and very stupid. And I know our society from the very get-go, from the time we're really little, we're taught to compare ourselves to others and to compete, you know, and to keep up or to excel. And that puts a pressure in us that doesn't, it, it creates a motivation, but it's not a good motivation. It's an ego-driven motivation, you know. I've I've got to be as good as somebody else otherwise I'm going to get criticized or otherwise I'm going to think I'm a failure or otherwise they're not going to like me and I've got to excel and I've got to I, 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 I. Yeah? And this whole thing of comparing ourselves to others, I don't think it works because we all are very unique. We're very... We all have different talents, different capabilities you know, what is easy for one person is difficult for another person. So I think it's a thing of, you know, seeing what our strengths are and what we can contribute. And also seeing where our weaknesses are and beginning to experiment and try and stretch ourselves. Yeah? But to do all of that without comparing ourselves to anybody else. Yeah? And just rejoicing at our own virtue and rejoicing at others' virtue. And we're not in a a basketball match about who's going to create the most virtue. Oh, it's coming down to the 20th day of EML, and -and so-and-so has 90,000 merits, and the other one has 90,001 merits, and will they be able to... No, we're not doing that. (laughs)
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about it as a, you know a lay practitioner um, bringing some of the the things that you do at the Abbey and sort of like, personalize, like instead of having like outside reading material, just have like all Dharma books or you know Buddhism mm-hmm. and um, you know like, what they wake you up early and all that different
0: stuff. Yeah, I think it's fine, and my hope is whatever you learn here at the Abbey that you see um, makes you feel good and makes you happy. That you bring that back when you leave, in, you know, into your lay life when you're going, and you start living according to, you know, doing what you want to do. And that's going to further your spiritual practice. You don't need to wait to come back to the Abbey to do that. You know, the abbey is presenting another way and it's showing you how to build another habit. And then you just take that with you and recreate it as best as you can. It won't be exactly the same, but you can bring it back with you. Okay, so i sit quietly for a couple of minutes and
1: digest.